Even if you're not a Russia hand or a Russia watcher, as I've been called and call myself, you almost certainly heard about the brief insurrection mounted a week ago by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the bald, foul-mouthed leader of the Wagner mercenary group. I've talked about Prigozhin many times with you before. He's been a staple of the invasion of Ukraine, recruiting imprisoned, violent offenders. His men died in droves to capture the strategically insignificant city of Bakhmut, where he spent months releasing videos threatening to leave and criticizing the defense ministry for supposedly undersupplying his group. Now he's world famous, or world infamous, for mounting a failed mutiny against the Russian military in a last-ditch attempt to avoid being absorbed into it, as the Russian authorities reclaim their monopoly on violence and officially end the country's little experiment with outsourcing bits of the Ukraine invasion to mercenaries. At the time I'm recording this, about a week has passed since Prigozhin's mutiny. And that means hundreds, maybe thousands, of experts, pundits, and passers-by have managed already to weigh in on what seemed for a sparkling few moments to be a genuine, perhaps terrifying threat to the everlasting Putin regime. And in that week, the dust has settled a bit. We have some vague details about the deal with Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko that apparently ended Prigozhin's march toward Moscow, and there's been some time to reflect on what it all means. So let's take stock and talk about how Wagner Group turned its guns on their compatriots. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. This week's show is the podcast's third time around, focusing on Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Wagner private military company. And we've got three guests to discuss three general themes. How did Prigozhin manage to convince his men to embark on this mutiny? What did we learn about the Russian political elite in all this? And what can we expect in Belarus, where at least some remnant of Wagner Group is said to be headed? Now, before we get to this week's interviews, I want to offer a quick reminder that it's now possible for the first time ever for U.S. residents, if you live in the United States, I'm talking to you, to make tax-deductible donations to Medusa, thanks to a partnership with Mother Jones and the Foundation for National Progress. Visit our website for more details, and please... Tell your friends and colleagues about our crowdfunding campaign and the fact that the Russian authorities are trying to end our work by outlawing Medusa's journalism as undesirable. Now, what that means is Russian nationals who support Medusa and read Medusa and share Medusa's work can face criminal prosecution. And that's why our need for support from people across the globe has never been more important. Okay, my first guest this week is a Russian political scientist currently serving as a visiting fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. My first question for Kirill Shamiev was about mercenary groups generally in Russia. Obviously, private military companies aren't unique to Russia, but what are the origins of the modern-day Russian PMC? Well, this is a good question because, in my view, so-called private military companies in Russia differ. Mm -hmm. It depends on who exactly organized them and who controls them, their size, their power in general. Because if you look at the PMC Wagner, it's a sort of a unique case. Well, all private military companies are unique in Russia's history because 
honestly, I've been trying to think about historical examples in the Russian past. And maybe in terms of significance, these expedition, so-called expeditions to the Far East and Siberia by like groups of Cossacks and basically some armed adventurers remind me of some sort of like pre-modern, modern private military companies. But Wagner just became the most powerful one and well, the most notorious one and also probably the most influential, not only because of its armed activities, as we know, Internet Research Agency under Prigozhin is all part of its network, trolls, bots, websites, social media groups, influence operations in Latin America, Africa, Syria, including with our people. What we know that originally, even before Wagner, there was sort of like semi legal private security companies that were sort of closer to this Western mainstream, though still not legal private security providers. Like the goon squads that protected oligarchs, or are you talking about something different? Slavonic Corps, it's a private military contractor. It was registered in Hong Kong. It's, it's Russian. And basically in 2014, the leadership of the Slavonic Corps PMC was accused of acting as mercenaries, and some of them were charged and convicted back in 2014. But some of its personnel, and as far as is know, some military leadership sort of moved towards the Wagner thing. Mm -hmm. But probably Wagner was different because as we know from investigative reports, originally the idea came to the main directorate of the general staff of the Russian military, and later it was sold to Putin, well, as we know, as the shadowy force, plausible deniability and everything. And they got support from the top leadership. Another aspect is, as we know, even from the Minister of Defense comments on that, that there are around 40 volunteer groups in Ukraine. And we also have seen evidence of some Gazprom and other big corporations who are sending volunteers, mercenaries to Ukraine. But I think what distinguishes them all, that those groups are significantly smaller and way less autonomous than Wagner. So they don't have any problems with integrating to the MOD. And actually, I would even think that for these corporations and other people who send them there, it's maybe even less of a pain in the neck because yeah. they have other responsibilities to work on. They still have their own, even private intelligence departments and private security companies, but only focus on, for example, Gazprom, some kind of pipeline protection, well, probably before sanctions, but it's also course, liability in terms of risks of uh, Ukraine war. I've seen a lot of people basically arguing that Putin, his recent admission that Wagner has been essentially fully funded by the Russian government, at least for the last year or so, that that admission proves that what he said in the past is wrong. Has Wagner's funding grown to be fully state funded or was that the case all along? Well, that's a really difficult question. My short answer would be, I don't know. Okay, yeah. Because we, uh, I haven't seen financial sure, indicators sure. or data of the Wagner company. Okay, let me, really... let me rephrase it. How about this? Let's just go back to the drawing board. The mutiny happened. It seems to be over, or at least paused now. Has your understanding in any fundamental way of what Wagner Group is, has it changed in the last week? Or mm. did everything that happened only confirm what you already thought we knew about Wagner Group? No, it hasn't changed my opinion on PMC Wagner in general, it has changed my opinion on Prigozhin, to be honest. Yeah. Well, why Wagner is, for me, is as it was still, because it's a completely unregulated informal force purely based on 
what its leadership, including Prigozhin, had with the Kremlin, Ministry of Defense officials, the FSB, that has always been supported by the Ministry of Defense in terms of armaments and equipment and vehicles. And they have provided airlifts for them to go to Africa and other countries. Right. And now it just became public and Putin basically confirmed it. Another aspect, what is interesting for me in Wagner is the amount of indeed this financial independence, because we know that they had some contracts in Africa. How did this money go? What cash flows, whether it was straight to Prigozhin's pocket or some, well, Concord group budget or something, or it went to some like informally, maybe regulated government uh, pocket. This would be interesting to know. But yeah, when it comes to Prigozhin, honestly, I want to be transparent here. I belong to that camp of people who thought that Prigozhin is like one of those members of the Russian elite who are sort of, uh, they only care about their own financial status and like ideological status, sort of their position in the system. They understand the rules of the game. They thought that Prigozhin would obey what the Kremlin offered him, some kind of deal with the Minister of Defense. Mm -hmm. I expected that it probably offered him some like, look, integrate Ukrainian forces to the MID and then go back uh, to Africa, Syria and do your business, get lots of money and awards, state awards and everything. So I thought that's precaution exactly like this typical member of the Russian elite, but it turned out to be false. So we don't know what exactly the deal was. Some people say that he really was scammed <laughs> maybe by the Kremlin. They offered him nothing and I'm not sure it's true. Consider how the presidential administration works and actually how powerful and important precaution was. I expect they offer him some kind of deal that he refused and then it all started. So that was an unexpected development for me. Do you think that that was based on something ideological? Like he was actually concerned that by folding Wagner into the military, it was going to endanger the invasion. And he was trying, because a lot of what he was saying was like, he's genuinely committed to this war effort and he's acting because he thinks he's, he's, you know, doing the best for that or is this still just him trying to maintain his clout as the head of a private military operation? Well, in my view, that first and foremost, it's of course, uh, some personal gains, financial uh -huh. or political power. But at the same time, well, even from, if you look at how these people work, it's always important. I think it's for all criminals and like maybe authoritarian leaders, they do need some personal legitimization first and foremost for themselves. No one likes to be considered a criminal and evil mm -hmm. or they're just doing something for money or killing people for money. Right. So I believe that partially, of course, it was just propaganda. And honestly, some things he say, I can literally, like we can open a Telegram chat and start listening to the voice messages. And he really says lots of lies mm -hmm. in his voice messages, especially like if you follow the war or Russian civil military relations. He's just playing it in his favor. What's one of the, what's like for, for listeners, like what's an example of just a blatant lie that he's. Well, for example, one of the last times he said that, oh, if Wagner was marching yeah. to Kiev, like they did to Moscow, they would have already been like in, in Jitomir or somewhere else. Right. Any military expert whom I respect would say that Wagner's march on Kiev would result in a different result because, well. There was no resistance inside Russia for various reasons. It's not probable that they would end up yeah. doing the same march in Kiev. Right. And the same when it comes to how he portrays himself as he takes care of his mercenaries, his, his personnel, how capable they are. Well, if we compare, for example, just different institutions, the Ministry of Defense and their officers, soldiers, they act in this 
ineffective, flawed, corrupt system, but still it's a corporation, bureaucratic corporation that has its own rules and limitations. Also in terms of just general sociological perception, for example, of losses, it's all highly problematic to have significant losses from the official side, especially for mobilized personnel that presidential administration acknowledges. That's why we have all these payments for soldiers and everything. While for mercenaries, well, it's a well-researched topic, even like in the U.S. and other countries, they're saying up themselves. It's their own volunteer action. And there is no this ideological perception of mercenaries as defenders. And especially with inmates, they got really thousands of inmates. And the evidence we have that they were considered just dispensable, like ammunition maybe. I once argued with some military experts uh, in private. My position was that the losses of inmates could actually be just disregarded by the Russian Minister of Defense and other like military planners because they were supposed to die in combat because that was their mission. And the lucky ones didn't die. Well, they said, those military experts said that still it's losses mean, mean losses. But I think the whole idea why they started hiring these inmates that, well, politically it's safe and they still need, needed manpower. And the way they employed Wagner, especially employed this manpower was just brutal. Why like, did these guys stick by Wagner then? I mean, like the majority of Wagner Group's personnel, most of them have declined so far, at least, or at least up until the mutiny to sign these contracts with the defense ministry, right? The, the president and the, and the military said, you know, we're effectively dissolving all the PMCs. We want you to sign contracts with us. If they would be treated better in the military because the military has a higher intolerance to losses for political reasons and whatever reasons, and Wagner Group is treating them all like cannon fodder, why isn't there, you know, an exodus of fighters in Wagner to go join the military? Well, first, it's a matter of commander's decisions. In my view, probably rank and file, they try to follow their commanders. And if they don't, they get like repressed or something is happening to them. Because again, because of this informality, including informality in Wagner, but also formal rules in the MOD. Another aspect is, of course, payments, for example, as far as we know, Wagner pays more, at least used to pay more than the Russian Ministry of Defense. Second is, of course, these regulations and the Russian military still, despite this being so ineffective, sometimes it's so ineffective because of this strict and false usage of old, outdated regulations and rules. We've seen some evidence that absolutely like bizarre commanders making their soldiers standing in the middle of the field because they, they wanted to have a the view of their own personnel. And this is just, of course, from the military perspective, it's a warrior, it's a combat zone, it's what they shouldn't be doing. Is there evidence that Prigozhin, and I all I have to go on is like whatever Telegram videos he's uploaded or whatever, but is there evidence that he has a persuasive personality cult among the men in, in Wagner Group? Like, is he genuinely respected and people feel like his fighters feel like he's fighting for them? Well, I, I remember how I read the book, well, the first book about Wagner written by one of their former mercenaries. The, the book by Marat Gabidolin, uh, it's called I don't know how they translate it. It's like entering one river two times. Well, in that book, when he was still in Russia and when he wrote it, I think there was some kind of agreement with Wagner. He described this force as some soldiers of fortune with this ideology of fighting for money effectively and at the same time being the hand of the Russian state and doing it for only for this payment, but with no further, you know, social support. And they were kind of glorifying this again, soldier of fortuneship idea. 
I think he left. He's probably now in France or he got asylum somewhere. And now he started talking like how actually criminal and basically bloodthirsty Wagner actually was. I remember him saying the PMC under Prigozhin acted like a criminal gang. Well, we don't know whether he's saying this just to get an asylum in France yeah. or whether it's true. But again, thinking about what evidence we have, how they treated their prisoners of war, what they did to the guy who, well, he got captured by the Ukrainian forces, then started speaking about Wagner, BMC, and Kiev, and then they basically killed him with a sledgehammer. It's all bad PR in terms of, yeah, if we think about the way they work, it probably was working for some of those hardcore violent individuals who, who just glorify violence. But I guess for the majority of fighters, it's, it was just, just a contract to survive and get money. So how do you explain then that, you know, however many thousands of men joined Wagner Group on this, this adventure, misadventure, whatever you want to call it, these men knew that they were occupying Russian military, you know, facilities, right? So, I mean, like, it just seems like, how did he convince them to do that? Is it just like they were behind on a paycheck and if they didn't follow that order, they wouldn't get the paycheck, so they might as well, you know, point a gun at, at the defense ministry headquarters in Rostov? Like, is it as simple as that or? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, my hypothesis here would be once their commanders decided and they basically routed up the soldiers and saying, okay, we got to go there. It's like similar to how the Russian military acted towards their own service members before the invasion. You just go there in that position, there's something to do. And then they end up, oh God, we are actually committing a treason here. And then there's no way to go because like there are probably some some soldiers who really believe in it and that they, well, you already committed crime, so just follow and everything is fine. We have a plan. Yeah. Well, we've seen this, this evidence again with the Russian official formal soldiers in February and March last year. Mm -hmm. Another thing is we don't know what's exact number of inmates uh, remained in the Wagner force and because they were all promised six months of service, basically, but in fact, it was more than six months and then freedom. And considering these people, especially those who were, you know, sentenced to thousands of years in prison, yeah. this is their, the only way of coming out of misery and basically right. survival because they can easily just die in prison. Sure, sure. And well, it, this is it. <laughs> Life sucks for them and mm -hmm. they could follow that. Of all the things that happened during the mutiny and anything that's happened since, what's the like one thing you wish you could, you could know? If you could be a fly on the wall for one moment mm. and overhear something that was, that was private, what's the one moment where you wish you could be there and witness it? If one thing, probably what was Trigorgian's original calculation? Uh, like his meeting original... with his, with his with commanders, like they're sitting there in Luhansk or, or wherever it yeah. is that, where they started and, and you, you wish you want to be there and hear that they're looking over a map of Rostov and they're deciding <laughs> where they're going to. Well, uh, basically their agenda, why they started to do this, what were their expectations? And of course, right. there and there it goes, what kind of allies they were expecting to have. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't do it if they didn't expect that they would, well, meet some, some support inside Russia. Bread and salt. Yeah, bread and salt, <laughs> but uh, maybe not from ordinary people, of course, but from, from people in power uh -huh. who, who could have promised something to them. Margarita Zavadskaya is a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. She was a guest on this podcast roughly three years ago. 
on an episode discussing secret polling conducted by the Federal Protective Service. She agreed to come back to talk again about elite politics in Russia. As far as, far as you can tell, has Prigozhin's mutiny led to splits in Putin's system of power, or would you say that it's consolidated the elites? Is it more one or the other? This is a tricky question <laughs> for, um, if I rely on political science and whatever we know and whatever we can rely on in political science. So from what I know and I'm aware of is that usually it signals the weakness of the regime. Mm-hmm. So it signals fragility. And it vividly demonstrates what is possible and what is not possible. So it's sort of, Prigozhin tested the system, he tested the limits. And in this sense, it sends a powerful signal to all those who actually kind of, you know, are feeling unsure whether they are going in the right direction. And this mutiny clearly shows that, yes, it's technically possible to occupy a bunch of cities. It's okay. No one is going to prevent people from moving forward. Although we have very little evidence whether that was really true that 25,000 right. people say that it was way less, like 8,000 people, Wagnerovsi, were moving, heading towards Moscow. Even if it's less, it doesn't really matter. What it's really telling is that people were silent. Regional administration were just sitting and waiting. Residents of Rostov and Don and Voronezh, people were just sitting and waiting, taking pictures, although taking pictures doesn't mean that they sincerely support Wagner, right? So it's a weird kind of entertainment people in and tanks in the city, right? It's like a victory day parade, but, you know, in a very strange time. One of the things that's said about the Putin regime and sort of the nature of, of politics under Putin is that the authorities don't actually seek popular mobilization. They seek, like, popular apathy. They want the public to go along with whatever policies they decide to pursue at any moment. Do you think that the response that we saw from the regional authorities and just from what we could tell of the public in places like Rostov and Voronezh, like, is that, are they happy with that? They're like, oh, good. They took some pictures, but like, that's it. And they left it up to the big guys. Do you think that's, that's pleasing or is that, or is it upsetting? Did somebody fail a test there? I think the reaction is kind of split. There is no smoking gun evidence that proves that people are disappointed Mm -hmm. that precaution stops like two kilometers away from Moscow. On the other hand, the whole mutant definitely resonates with anti-elitist sentiment, if not anti-Putin, but I would say anti-oligarchs and anti-Moscow sentiment. So this, this is something that is, we, we definitely observe you know, what's happening. And I think in places like Veronish or, or Rostov, Wagner people, I mean, they, they, there is some sympathy towards them. So mm-hmm. we can't deny. But this is a kind of, you know, there's something I call wartime populism, anti-elitism, anti-establishment. Perhaps anti-Putin because whatever is against corrupt elite, that's the idea behind. So, and among these people, mostly males, like between 16 years old up until 60, 70. Mm-hmm. So they are pretty happy with Wagner, say, in the streets. So they were taking pictures. Right. If we look at the videos, basically this kind of slice of Russian society, but that's by no means representative. Does the Kremlin look like it's unhappy with the way that Rostov, especially the Rostov regional leadership handle this? Or is it kind of like, yeah, you did right. You know, you just sit tight. We'll handle it. Like, what's the administrative approach here? I know I'm asking you to kind of mind read a little bit, but just judging by the the rhetoric so far, I guess. The way I see is that the Kremlin, the presidential administration, were waiting for, if not even uniform, but a kind of unequivocal approval from the Russian governors 
from what I know, Andrei Pertsov, he said that the Russian governor's board provided certain instructions slightly before the mutiny. It's just a coincidence. Mm. So this is why they knew what to do. Again, this is a technical coincidence. Mm. It's not like the Kremlin was prepared for that. Kremlin was just lucky. Mm. And I guess the overall reaction we're observing so far is that Kremlin is, you know, there was a sign of relief. So we're glad that it's over and really want to forget what has happened. Just let's forget about it. Mm -hmm. So we haven't seen anything, nothing major happened. So that's the kind of message that Kremlin and Kremlin admins are trying to deliver. Mm -hmm. So they are just happy that it's over. Does that mean based on the signals you've seen so far, there'll be no kind of purge of disloyal elites or anything like that? That it'll just be business as usual? Nothing's going to happen to anybody? Like everybody's just kind of going to get a pass on this? I think some parts will clearly happen. All the speculations around Surovikin was going to happen with the guy because he's allegedly was aware of mutiny and that something was, right. but mm-hmm. hadn't done anything. So this is a double-edged source. From the autocrat's point of view, he clearly, or people like him clearly deserve some punishment. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if it happens and if it's going to be like a loud case all over media and so on and so forth, it's also not a cool thing to do because it signals that, oh, that was a big thing, actually. That was right. a major happening, like people in Kremlin are taking it seriously. So it's a kind of, you know, indirect sign of acceptance. Yes, we admit that that was the bad thing and we were in real danger. Mm -hmm. So in this sense, I think the Russian propaganda specialists are playing a very tricky game these days. So they must sanction these people, but these sanctions are very likely to be kind of not very visible to the broader audience. How would you judge the Kremlin's response to the crisis? You've said that they got lucky essentially with some of these instructions to governors and so on. And now they're basically trying to kind of move on and not attract too much attention to it because that just keeps the crisis going to some degree. In the moment, how would you rate the response? Was it clumsy or was it, given the circumstances, you know, fairly effective? I mean, the mutiny did fail, obviously. So there's that at least. The response was definitely clumsy. (laughs) If you remember those marvelous you know, 10 minutes speech by Vladimir Putin. Right. It looks strange and so odd. Usually mm-hmm. the best case scenario is for an autocrat is to look, you know, stunning, to mm-hmm. look very self-confident, to demonstrate all sorts of signals that he is in his right mind. He's decisive. He knows what he's doing. And it's important not just for the Russian citizens. It's important for the elites because the majority of people in among the high ranks, they don't see Putin every day, right. on an everyday basis. They're also wondering, is the guy alive? So it's mostly, it's page for the elites. And usually spin doctors or kind of sorts of speech writers are responsible for making the guy look decent. Mm-hmm. And they clearly failed because I guess Putin just wrote the speech himself. And it sounded as a conversation with a dear friend. We know that there was some complicated personal relationship going on between Prigozhin and Putin. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of kind of talking to a friend who misbehaved. Right. And this right. is not the kind of you know, message a strong autocrat is expected to deliver. Mm-hmm. It looked bad. Once Evgeny Prigozhin saw a bloodbath in his path to Moscow and retreated, all eyes turned to Belarus, where he and those Wagnerites still loyal to him are said to be headed. At the same time, nobody's actually seen any of these guys set foot in Belarus yet, and speculation is still flying about where Prigozhin is and where his men will end up. For some insights into the Belarus angle in all this, I spoke to Katya Glod, a policy fellow at the European Leadership Network and a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis's 
Democratic Resilience Program. Earlier this week, Lukashenko gave this very long press conference, although I guess that's typical for him when he feels like he wants to talk a lot. And he talked about his his supposed role in these negotiations that ended the Prigozhin mutiny or insurrection. What are your takeaways from what he said? Well, I have several takeaways. Um, my first takeaway is that Lukashenko did not really play an active role in the sense that I don't think he really initiated uh, this um, negotiation. I think he was more used by the Kremlin in a way, uh, you know, Belarus is like a dumping ground. If we look back at the uh, tactical nuclear weapons which are supposed to be deployed in Belarus, I think it's a very similar story when the Kremlin thinks that they can take their scare nuclear rhetoric one step further, they can use Lukashenko because you can actually deliver the weapons to Belarus and it would look scary. I think by the same token, Lukashenko was used by Putin and by the Kremlin to play a messenger role. And obviously he has the legitimacy for that. He is the leader of the state, even though we don't probably recognize him as a legitimate president of Belarus. Nonetheless, he controls the country. He and Prigozhin have a relationship. It seems that it has been going on for more than 20 years. He met Prigozhin back in St. Petersburg in one of the restaurants where the Russian elites used to hang out. They seem to have some common interests in Africa, in Sudan, in Darfur, in particular, in you know smuggling gold, etc. We don't know much about that, but there seems to be some recent investigation into their interests actually converging there. And both uh, Prigozhin and Lukashenko have spoken very favorably of each other. For example, Lukashenko said back in 2020, just before his presidential re-election, that Prigozhin was being used by the Kremlin to stage a war in Donbass, but he's actually a nice man. And He said that after the arrest of the 33 Wagnerites? Yeah, yes, that was after the arrest of those 33 uh, Wagner mercenaries. So then they had been released by then and he was given an interview to Gordon, a, a Ukrainian journalist. So he wanted to make, you know, look as if this sort of Russian meddling in Donbass is not that bad and it's not Prigozhin's fault. Yeah. But in a similar manner, Prigozhin said when Lukashenko grounded the Ryan Edge at carrying a, a Belarusian blogger that Lukashenko is a real man and that he glorifies him. So it seems that they both have had a good relationship. They know each other. And Lukashenko has, you know, a country behind him, which probably no one else in the world, definitely no one else in Kremlin has. And therefore, I think Lukashenko was given this role to pass the message. This is the main takeaway, that that was not his active role, but something that the Kremlin dumped upon him. My second takeaway is that, however, Lukashenko is obviously trying to make the best of it. He's trying to make it as a PR success for himself, as someone who can be an arbiter in a way, similar to what we thought Putin has always been, an arbiter in um, Russia, you know, trying to sort things out between various factional elite interests in Russia. And I think he also, in a way, has been enjoying the way he spoke at the press conference. He's been enjoying to portray himself as someone who was almost above Putin, almost like humiliating Putin, that, look, you know, 
Putin was withdrawn. He said that at the beginning, Putin sort of discussed that with him, but then Putin withdrew. It was Bastrykin, it was other people, and Lukashenko tried to call uh, Prigozhin himself and talk to him, you know, as if almost Lukashenko is sort of sourcing out things in Russia, and I think it really pleased his ego. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what we take from the press conference, which was on the surface. Of course, what Lukashenko did not say, but what my feeling is, and other Belarus watchers, uh, I think, also think so, is that Lukashenko at the same time is very anxious. He's anxious about having Prigozhin in Belarus. He's anxious about having Wagner's mercenaries in Belarus because they Prigozhin and the mercenaries, they can really destabilize the situation in Belarus. Someone of Prigozhin's political weight and economic might could easily buy off Belarusian security services, and that does pose risk to the Lukashenko regime. Are there other mercenary groups in Belarus already? Like, Does Belarus have experience with this, or is Wagner Group going to be the first and only private military company to set foot on, on Belarusian soil? It's not the first private military company in the sense that Belarus does have um, one of its own uh, private military companies, although it's called Guard Service. It's a uh, private company that provides security services within Belarus. So it's not a mercenary that fights wars and insurgencies overseas. The Belarusian legislation does not allow Belarusian citizens to fulfill the role of the mercenaries under the Belarusian law. This is a punishable offense up to seven years in prison. And we have so far not heard of any Belarusian mercenary-owned company operating either outside Belarus or even inside Belarus. What this guard service is doing, it's quite murky, but it seems that it's something, you know, uh, more or less like Lukashenko's private army, something that would protect him in case there is a new protest in Belarus. So I think from this perspective, it's quite new to Belarus. There have not been also other Russian mercenaries that have been stationed in Belarus. And it seems what Lukashenko, Lukashenko was also very ambiguous about Wagner mercenaries in uh, Belarus in his press conference. He did say at first that we are going to put them into the Belarusian army, that Belarusian army will absorb them. And then later he said that he will allow Belarusian citizens to become mercenaries, but he will not allow Wagner mercenaries to set up recruitment centers in Belarus. So it sounded as if Lukashenko is quite unsure of this relationship and how to handle it and what to do Mm -hmm. with them. He's learning about it as he talks about it. Yes, yeah. Well, my take is that he obviously, and he did say that in the press conference, that he would like to learn from Wagner's experience in combat operations. We do know that, of course, Belarusian army has no combat experience. It has also yielded some of its command, operational command, to um, the Russian Western Military District. So it does not seem... uh, to have enough capabilities at the moment that operational capabilities that the army used to have even 10, 15 years ago. So it might be that Lukashenko would use the Wagner mercenaries to learn from their combat experience, how to conduct combat operations, how to conduct, you know, large-scale operations, which is in particular what uh, 
Belarusian army lacks experience of how to conduct also combined arms operations, but it doesn't look like the mercenaries will stay in Belarus. It will probably be some sort of temporary solution. And then who knows, they might depart to Africa. They might be dissolved completely. Maybe most of them will never arrive and, you know, will be absorbed by the Russian military of defense or be alienated or disbanded. But it did not sound like Lukashenko has a plan what to do with them if they were to come to Belarus. One of the things that was sustaining Wagner Group's operations, not just in Ukraine where it's been focusing its work lately, but in like they've relied a lot on basically like military flights and, you know, to get heavy equipment there, they need military planes and they don't have those themselves. And so they have relied on the Russian military. Do you think that this is something that the Belarusian Air Force would be able to provide if if it turns out that Prigozhin does show up in Belarus with some amount of his men and they decide that they're going to continue sending things to Syria and Africa. I know that we've already been hearing from the Kremlin that they're eager to move in on those operations as well. It sounds like a lot of the rhetoric from Moscow, at least, it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for Wagner to continue operating. But, you know, they didn't go to war and destroy them. So they still exist in some uh, shape or fashion. Well, first of all, uh, Belarusian Air Force as such does not exist. For the past 10 years, there has been so-called combined air defense and air force between Russia and Belarus. Belarus in general lacks sort of modern weaponry, lacks modern equipment. It has been buying something from Russia, something Russia has been given it for free. It's been buying something from China. Air Force is a particular weak spot in Belarus. Belarus has to rely on the Russian Air Force. So I don't think that Belarus really has enough of its own Air Force capability to offer it to Wagner. You, you were talking previously about the fact that Belarusian nationals or Belarusian citizens domestically are forbidden by law from serving in mercenary groups. Do you have any sense of like how legal is it for Wagner Group to be present in Belarus, given the local laws? I think, well, the local laws do allow private military companies, but those that okay. provide only security to internal stakeholders, like the president, like, you know, private companies, I think this is allowed. It's not allowed to set up a mercenary company that will be fighting overseas. Having said that, we do have some evidence that there are some Belarusians who are fighting, have been fighting within mercenaries. We are not talking about great numbers, probably maybe a dozen, a couple of dozen, but nonetheless, these people do exist. Obviously, there is a concern in the Belarusian public that if Prigozhin were to recruit new mercenaries, try to recruit new mercenaries in Belarus, that some people would feel that this is something that they would like to do only because um, it's a lucrative pay. Well, the financial, I think the financial resource is the main uh, reason why people would do that. Otherwise, the Wagner group has quite bad and, you know, low popularity in Belarus. I think many people believe that it's more criminal than, you know, former army fighters group. I mean, I could see how Lukashenko could sort of allow Prigozhin to try and recruit some people in Belarus, recruit a new company, if that was something that he and Prigozhin and the Kremlin had agreed upon. And I can see some people trying to join this mercenary, but I don't think it will be a large-scale exercise. 
I think, I mean, my feeling is that Lukashenko would rather try to gain some uh, extraction from uh, Trigoshin, from the Russian mercenaries, from Wagner, to try and get some experience. Maybe, you know, held some, hold some exercises, pass some of the knowledge to the Belarusian generals, and then, you know, dispose of these uh, mercenaries as soon as possible. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.